At Vertex, we know the pace of global commerce is increasing, which makes managing tax more complex. And your enterprise systems weren't built to handle that tax complexity. This is where we come in with our platform that enables continuous compliance, giving you more transparency, improved accuracy, and better confidence in your tax data. To learn more about continuous compliance, visit vertexinc.com. Roundabout Season 2, presented by Nissan, is live now, and we're back to share more stories from the road and the memories made along the way. We're talking rest stops. If we're stopping to get gas, you will be timed. Misguided plans. I grew up in the city, so I have, like, you know, a healthy fear of real extreme darkness. <laughs> a lot of laughs. Y'all weird, but you, yeah, you, you were different. And so much more. Listen and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Five thousand miles away from the UK is El Salvador. It's a tiny nation in Central America, home to just under seven million people. It's known as the land of volcanoes, but it also had the unfortunate accolade of being the country with the world's highest murder rate. At its peak in 2015, the murder rate was 100 times the UK's. Until something recently changed. El Salvador is making news. It has more than halved its murder rate by cracking down on gangs. Murder is down 90% from its peak. But quickly, questions start to be raised about how this was happening. A video emerged showing hundreds of gang members arrested, handcuffed, and forced into what's been described as a mega jail. More than 70,000 people have already been taken into custody. Prisoners packed together and put on display in footage released by the government. That's 1% of the country's entire population in prison. And one man has been credited with the crackdown. You unleash a wave of crime, and we take away the food in prisons. President Nayib Bukele took office in 2019, and his tough stance on gangs has seen his approval rating skyrocket, with his aviator shades, designer beard, baseball cap. This millennial leader is now more popular in Latin America than the Pope. But at what cost? The strategy in El Salvador seems to be... First they arrest, then they tweet about it, and then eventually in the future they might investigate these people. This is exactly the opposite of what has to be done under the rule of law in a democracy. The gang crime crackdown has even prompted calls in neighbouring countries to do likewise in Ecuador, Colombia, Chile. Has President Bekele discovered a new way to deal with crime? Or is this yet another authoritarian leader on the rise? Let's say he remains hugely popular. Does he do what other Latin American leaders have done? And that is, you know, try and stay in power for the foreseeable future. People who are worried that this might be the beginning of a dictatorship in a Central American country, they have reason to fear that. You're listening to Stories of Our Times from The Times and The Sunday Times. I'm Luke Jones. Today, the rise of the self-proclaimed coolest dictator in the world.
this is a captivating story. I mean, you just have to look at the images and the figures, really. 70,000 people being rounded up and put into prison. Sometimes those images, which are, are very carefully curated by the government, look like something out of a, of a Netflix film. I'm Stephen Gibbs, and I cover Latin America for The Times and The Sunday Times. The world, I guess, became aware of this back in February, to a certain extent, when this video emerged from El Salvador. What exactly did we see? Those early videos of when the clampdown in El Salvador against gangs began were quite extraordinary, really. They were carefully produced by the government, and what they showed was thousands of prisoners, shaven heads, no shirts, no shoes, bowing down, clearly very subdued, clearly quite frightened, being taken from trucks and lorries and coaches into a brand new prison, as it happened, and processed by masked officials. And that was it. This was clearly a massive campaign by the presidency to show his people and the world, OK, I'm going to be taking zero tolerance towards criminals and this is how I'm doing it. And it was very, very sort of slickly publicised. Well, a lot of the men also had tattoos. Tell us why that's significant. Yes. If you look carefully at those people that were being rounded up, they were all shirtless and that revealed that almost all were tattooed and many of them had the names of, of gangs there. So this was the point the government was making by releasing those images is these people we're rounding up, they're not civilians, you know, they're not innocent people, they are hardened gang members. And it was a message that went down very well with the population in El Salvador. But this was all part of a propaganda operation, really, by the government led by President Bukele. And what do we know of this place where they actually were, Stephen? A mega jail, by all accounts. Yes, one of the things President Bukele has done is, is built a massive prison in order to have a place to put all these thousands of people he is arresting. It's one of the biggest prisons in the world. It's in a place called Tecaluca, which is uh, 74 kilometres outside the capital of San Salvador. It's a brand new, enormous sort of warehouse-looking building or series of eight buildings. Each has 32 cells of about 100 square metres and each of those holds more than 100 prisoners in each, the government says. The cells have just two sinks and two lavatories each, and the prisoners are given a sort of food, but less than the sort of normal expected for a prisoner anywhere in the world, including in El Salvador. And that's deliberate. I mean, the government is saying this is no holiday camp. These are really harsh conditions these people are going to be in, and they're going to be there for as long as necessary. And harsh conditions for a big crackdown on gang members, as the government has it. What has prompted this crackdown by the president, if that's not a stupid question? It's not a stupid question at all. I mean, the whole problem of gangs goes back decades in El Salvador. It really started during the civil war there, which was from 1979 to 1992. During that period, a whole lot of people left the country and many of them went to the United States, particularly Los Angeles. And it was there that a whole group of Salvadorians were sort of recruited and set up two gangs. One was called MS-13 and the other Barrio 18. 
Then, in the 90s, as the Civil War came to an end, the US deported a whole lot of people from Salvador back to their home country. And along with innocent Salvadorians, there were these gang members. Salvadoran immigrants returned to a country reeling from civil war, and many were unable to earn enough to survive and turned to well-armed gangs. Since then, really, they have begun to hold sway over the whole of the country, so that in 2015, the murder rate in El Salvador was around 100 per 100,000 population, which was the highest in the world at the time. 60,000 Salvadorans, double the police force, are gang members in a country with the highest murder rate in the world for young people under the age of 19. And although the overall murder rate has consistently declined since 2015, it too remains one of the highest in the world. And the business model here for these gangs is is what? Drugs and gone about, as you say, violently. Drugs, extortion, kidnapping, sort of a mafia-style setup in parts of the country. So if you run a business anywhere, you have to pay protection money to these people or you'll find your business will be firebombed. So it's a very profitable way of running a business from the gang's perspective, but appalling for the people that live there. And, you know, there were whole areas of the country that were sort of gangland. And that meant that, you know, at night, no one would go out. There was sort of almost self-imposed curfew. And these gangs just got more and more powerful and more and more rich. So consecutive governments in El Salvador ever since have been trying to to tackle this problem. Bukele became president in 2019, and he did what initially, what a whole lot of previous governments had done, which is effectively make a pact with the gangs. He never sort of admitted doing this, but the the evidence is that that's what happened. And basically said, you stop the violence and you will be able to operate in certain parts of the country. That's what the allegation is. That, I should say, broke down in March last year because there was this extraordinary outburst of violence between the 25th and the 27th of March when 87 people were killed in the space of just a few days. That made headlines in the country and around the world. And that really was the turning point. Over 2,000 arrests made in just four days in response to one of the bloodiest weekends in the country in 30 years. The National Civil Police reporting 62 homicides on Saturday alone. And following that... Bukele said, right, that's it. There's now zero tolerance for gangs and we're going to start rounding you up. And because Mm. he was a popular and powerful leader, he was able to go ahead with that. So the crackdown begins then under President Bukele. What does that actually entail? How does it start? It entails uh, March last year with a state of emergency being imposed. And that meant that the usual provisions in the constitution, i.e. you can't be put in jail for a long time without trial, they stopped the right to free assembly, key provisions to protect the innocent were put aside initially actually just for 15 days, then 30 days. And that state of emergency has been in place ever since. And It's enabled Bukele, using the army and the police, to go across the country and arrest anyone on any suspicion of being a member of a gang. And one of the key pinpoints the government has been using for gang membership is to have a tattoo, which is why, you know, we've seen those shirtless prisoners in those prisons 
all of them have got tattoos. And the government mm. says, you don't get a tattoo that says the name of one of those gangs if you just sort of support it like a football club. This is a gang membership of a criminal organisation, mm. and that's why we have the right to lock you up. Are there concerns that there could be innocent people or people not as involved in the gang crimes as we might think they are? Oh, I mean, definitely. There, you know, there's no question that if you arrest, and the government says it's arrested 71,000 people in a country of under 7 million, so more than 1% of the entire population has been arrested. If you're arresting those sort of numbers without a trial, of course, innocent people are going to be caught up. And outside that main prison we were describing, and also other places where prisoners are being held in the country following this crackdown, there are relatives saying, you know, this is my nephew, this is my son, this is my grandson, this is my husband, who's being held, and he's totally innocent. He just was in the wrong place at the wrong time. Fear still exists because of these families of the gangs that seek to harm others that have nothing to do with the gangs. Before, these people would threaten you. Now, though, the threat is that they will falsely report you. It's something that police sometimes just allow to happen. The government says it has, of all the, the tens of thousands it has arrested, 6,000 have been released some of them because they were underage, others because they were unwell. The government avoided saying any because they were completely innocent. But, mm. you know, the few human rights organisations that can operate in El Salvador say this is an outrage and this is a dangerous precedent where you do arrest so many people. So he's got then 70,000 or, or so people behind bars, which I presume need to face trial at some point. How on earth could he go about doing that? Arresting them and keeping them in prison is one thing, but actually putting them through some kind of judicial process is a completely other undertaking as well. Yes, totally. I mean, you know, the government has set up itself for a, a difficult logistical and bureaucratic problem of how do you, assuming you want to put these people eventually on trial, how do you do it? And in the last couple of weeks, we've heard some details about that with the National Assembly in El Salvador, which is very much controlled by the President Bukele and his supporters. It has said that they plan to go ahead with mass trials where up to around 900 people will be put on trial at one go with the same evidence presented against all of them. And there'll be sort of lumped together according to where they're from. The assumption being that if you're a potential gang member and you've been arrested and you've got a tattoo or whatever, and you're from that particular part of the country, well, then if crimes have been carried out in that part of country, then you are responsible. The government justifies this sort of very unusual measure by saying that this is how the gangs operate, that a sort of oath of loyalty between each other of the gangs when you join it, so that if one of your brethren commits a crime, it's a crime in which you all participate. Mm. It's a bit similar to what happened in the 80s against the mafia in Italy, where, where there were sort of high-profile mass trials there, but on a much bigger scale. And in fact, the Salvadorian government has been boasting about that, saying the the Italians managed to get about 300 prisoners together for a single trial. We're going to go bigger than that and do more than like 900. Obviously, this would be terrible if you were someone who was caught up in this, who genuinely had no reason to be. But, but I'm just wondering if you're the average citizen in El Salvador, from your vantage point, are things actually going quite well? What is the catch with all of this that has got so many people concerned about this president? Well, what's been completely noticeable is that 
for the time being, this policy is working. The murder rate in El Salvador has halved in the last year. I've been talking to people who live there and people who have relations there, and even those that really have severe reservations about a very authoritarian system like that, where you lock up people without trial, they say, I've got to admit, the country's been transformed, that there are areas where there were parks that no one dared step foot in because they'd be worried they'd be kidnapped or something. Now there are children playing in there at night. And businesses... They all say that this extortion money that they used to have to pay once a month to these gang leaders, suddenly there's no one demanding that. So you can run a sort of normal business. So it's gone down well amongst the majority of the population and also in the wider world. For example, when the Times publishes a story on El Salvador and we describe what's been happening. If you look at the comments section, a lot of people are saying, oh, well, that's what you should do in the US or in the UK or elsewhere. Because for the time being, it's working. But the question is, what problems does this set mm. up further down the line? But Kayleigh, for the time being, can say that he was fairly elected in 2021 and is a, a legitimate democratic leader. question is really, you know, what happens next? Coming up, what do we know about the man who described himself as the world's coolest dictator? Could it give us clues for what's in store? That's after this. 70,000 people might be tried and what kind of conditions they're being kept in in, in mega jails at the moment. Fill us in on, on President Bukele himself. What do we know about him? Where did he start in politics? Bukele really came to international attention when he was elected in 2019, age just 37, which made him the youngest head of state in Latin America. Armando Bukele Ortiz. His sort of selling point, and, and this was big in his campaign, was he was a breath of fresh air, unlike all the previous political leaders in the recent history of El Salvador, who'd really come from one side or the other of the civil war that had happened in that country. We had a civil war 30 years ago. So it's a country that is used to being polarized. And the fact that we had a, a party that was the, the radical right and the very leftist party, and that was very polarized. I mean, you had ultra-nationalism against uh, communism and Marxism. And now you have 90% of the country, even a little more than 90% of the country, that's not on the right and the left, but it's thinking forward and wanting to do, wanting to have a better country. And wanting he came from a sort of totally different background. 
a Palestinian family and from a business family. He was involved in various franchises in El Salvador, including a company selling motorbikes and other running nightclubs. He was quite a successful mayor of San Salvador, the capital, which was his sort of platform to launch his political campaign to become president and very, very active on social media. So he's constantly tweeting in the run-up to that election and, and really ever since. He brands himself, you know, with sort of tongue-in-cheek. Occasionally his Twitter bio will say, I'm the coolest dictator in the world, or play on the fact that people accuse him of being a dictator. And yeah, very, very sort of effective, young, new generation leader. And also came to prominence before this criminal clampdown because he pushed that El Salvador became the first country in the world to use the Bitcoin as legal tender as a legal currency there. So uh, that made him a bit of a hero amongst libertarians all over the world who say, look at what El Salvador is doing. It's a sort of a very different way of doing politics and mm. doing e economics. And that made him very popular. Before this change with the whole criminal thing, which has meant that a lot of the people around the world who just thought he was a sort of modern, young, interesting character are beginning to have a bit of doubts about what he might yeah. be planning. And am I right in saying that he used to work in marketing? And I don't know, anyone who's had dealings with marketing departments in the past might sort of fear them rising <laughs> up the ranks to lead a country. But is that what part of his success is based on, in that he can seemingly pitch himself as a brand so effectively? Yes, people who come from a marketing or journalism background, of course. Uh, Always worrying. Perhaps uh, it's, it shouldn't run countries. Uh, yes, he's been very, very good at marketing himself and marketing what he's doing. And the slickness of the campaigns about these arrests is impressive. This is a very, very well-produced films that are being put out on Twitter and elsewhere about the arrests or when, when they go and look for gangs in the countryside. So he's very, very aware of how the world has changed because of social media. And he's one of the of several leaders who've played on that successfully. And also, can you just describe him for us as well? Because the few pictures that I've seen, he doesn't look like the president of a Latin American country. No, he looks more like the marketing manager, doesn't he? I mean, he, yeah. he refuses to wear a tie, uh, even if he's sitting with a whole bunch of bankers wearing ties. You know, he wears a baseball cap, backwards, leather jacket. He's quite kind of into the surfing. El Salvador's a good place to go surfing. And he's, I'm not sure he surfs himself, but you know, he's in with the surfers there. And one of the places where Bitcoin is widely used is some of the surf resorts on El Salvador's Pacific coast. He likes being unconventional. And he, as I say, he markets his image Brilliant. And part of that as well, I guess, includes what you mentioned, the fact that sometimes his, his Twitter bio includes the title, The World's Coolest Dictator. How much of that do you think is a joke and how successful do you think that is in, in batting off those accusations that he is one? Yeah, I mean, he's not a dictator yet. He's definitely the elected leader of El Salvador. That The 2019 election was, was a clean one. But what's happened since he's been in power and he's been able to leverage his popularity from this is he's he's got more and more control of the instruments of power. One of the ways he was able to do this security clampdown was by getting Congress to totally agree to it. And before he had a massive majority in Congress, you know, there was a bit more opposition there. And he went in with security officials into the actual Congress building and said, you've got to agree to this or, you know, we'll be coming in again and again. And that sort of seemed like a, 
a threat on the parliamentary side of his rule. The next big question hanging over Bukele in El Salvador is whether he stands again for election according to the constitution or in a sort of general agreement is you can only do one term, then you have to sit out and then you can do another term. Now he's implying he's going to stand again. And of course, he's popular enough that if he does, and he's sort of allowed to do, he will be able to do so with a massive majority. There may be a bit of fiddling around the edges that he might step out of power for a few months and then come back in. So he does a second term. Let's say he remains hugely popular. Does he do what other Latin American leaders have done? And that is try and stay in power for the foreseeable future. And there seem to be few breaks really on him doing that. So yeah, people who are worried that this might be the beginning of a dictatorship in a Central American country, you know, they have reason to fear that. And is there a clear playbook for him to follow in Central America, even if he does do it with a difference of having a baseball cap and talking about Bitcoin? <laughs> is there a route for him to slip more easily into authoritarianism? Oh, definitely. I mean, Bukele doesn't categorise himself as from the left or the right, but nearby in, in Central America, there's Daniel Ortega, a former leftist guerrilla leader who's very much ensconced in power and, and looks like being set to be in power for as long as he chooses to. I mean, elections there have become a farce where the last election, all the serious contenders were arrested before the election. So, you know, when you have your hands on the levers of power, you know, you can do all these dirty tricks, really. So the people who are cautious about what's happening in El Salvador are saying, you know, you've just got to make sure that the institutions are strong mm. enough that if the people decide they don't want Bukele, there is a means of, of stopping him from continuing. And if they can't stop him and he does continue, what is the fear for people in El Salvador about having that kind of authoritarian leader again could mean for them in their day-to-day -day life if they themselves are not a gang member or the relation of a gang member? The fear really is, is that what happens is that people say, okay, I'll put up with a a strong man, an authoritarian leader, because look, he's making this country a whole lot more peaceful. He's sending his troops out and he's arresting all the people I don't like. Now, the problem is that does that mean that the security forces of a country can then arrest anyone they don't like? And that might become the people who politically oppose him, for example. You sort of put power into the hands of the state as a deal, and that can backfire. You know, some people have been referring to the situation in Chile, where uh, General Pinochet, one of the reasons he was able to become a dictator really at the beginning was he said, you know, I will restore order and security to this country. But then a decade down the line, people were fearful that his death troops could go and go after them. So, you know, some people with long memories are saying, do be careful about this. Bukele just ridicules this. He says, what evidence have you got for that? And he jokes about it, which is the whole world's coolest dictator tag. He's sort of saying, you know, this is alarmist. All I'm really doing is giving people the human right they deserve, and that is to be able to live a, a life where you can run a business without being extorted and your children can play safely in the streets without being kidnapped. So it's a, it's a complicated deal, and at the moment, he's on the right side of it, according to his popularity. And on the point of popularity, do we know exactly how popular there have been lots of, of surveys and, and, you know, recently they've been putting him, his approval rating above 80% and one just a few weeks ago put it at 93%. Now, 
when those surveys come out, in fact, someone from the Times did email me and say, can this possibly be true? Mm. Is this some kind of dodgy poll? But no, these are legitimate polls. And it kind of makes sense because people from the left and the right, whatever their political views, most of them are looking out of the window and thinking, you know, this country's been transformed. So for the moment, he's on this huge sort of honeymoon of support. And there's no other elected political leader in the world that can claim that. So thinking then to the future, you mentioned how there are a few hurdles to him standing again as president, even though he has hinted he wants to, and even though his party have now officially nominated him to stand for re-election. What chance do you think he actually stands to remain in power for a good few more years? I think it's a sort of slam dunk that he's going to he's going to do a second term whatever tricks that requires with the constitution when you've got 93% support you're only 42 you know you think you're on a big program here you know not just the the crime issue but the whole bitcoin thing uh, he wants to see that through so I think the name of Bukele is going to be featuring for a long, long time. I think the likelihood at the moment is it's certainly a second term, and who knows, then maybe a third or a fourth. You've been listening to Stories of Our Times, a podcast brought to you thanks to subscribers of The Times and The Sunday Times. With me, Luke Jones, and my guest, The Times' correspondent in Latin America, Stephen Gibbs. You can find all of Stephen's work at thetimes.co.uk. The producer for this episode is Priyanka Deladia. The executive producer today was James Shield. And sound design was by Charlie Brandon King. If you have a story that you think we should be covering, maybe even an idea for a future episode, or maybe your thoughts or opinions on what you just heard, let us know. You can send us an email anytime at storiesofourtimes at thetimes.co.uk. Goodbye. Your History is a new podcast brought to you from The Times and it brings together the real-life stories from our obituaries desk, which have been published for over a century. In this brand new show, we build on this legacy and explore the endlessly fascinating lives who have enriched and informed our own. Join me and our sponsor, Ancestry, as we journey through your history. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. Hi, I'm Jesse Cruikshank. Jesse Cruikshank. I host the number one comedy podcast called Phone a Friend. Girl, let's phone a friend. Not only do I break down the biggest stories in pop culture with guests like Dan Levy and members of InSync, I do it with my own personal boy band singing jingles throughout. Because it's my show. It's your show, girl. New episodes of Phone a Friend. Yeah. Drop Thursdays wherever you get your podcasts. So work it, girl. Yeah, work it. Okay, that's enough. Acast helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. Acast.com. <laughs>